0: for us is genesis chapter 25 let's ask the lord once again to bless and teach us today oh father our hearts are filled to overflowing we think of your goodness to us of making known your ways to us how precious is your word and yet oh lord it seems that there's a famine of your word in the land and in your church Perhaps in our own private lives. We pray that the Spirit of God who moved upon men of old to pen these words to to be our teacher and guide today. Lord, help me as your pastor to rightly divide the word. And may I say only that which you'd have me to say today, Lord. Superintend and override anything that you would not have me do. Or perhaps anything that that I had not planned to say that you won't spoken in your house today in the teaching of your word. Lord, you've commanded the preaching of the gospel to go into all the world and preach, herald, to teach the gospel to every creature. Lord, we know all of your word is the gospel from Genesis 1 to the very last. Amen. So may we give ourselves over to it and may we that have ears to hear, let us hear today. Open the eyes of our hearts. May we discern these things spiritually and may we not leave the same. May we, as already has been asked, not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of it. Teach us these things we beg in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In Genesis 25, verse 1, we read, Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. After Isaac marries Rebekah and moves away, Abraham marries again. He is 140 years old at the time of Isaac's marriage. He marries Keturah, and they have six sons. It's not as if the Lord gave Isaac miraculously in a wonderful way, but he gives Abraham six more sons. One of the sons, Midian, is mentioned often in the Old Testament and his descendants, the Midianites. On various occasions, they join up with and are allies with the Ishmaelites, the Moabites and the Amalekites. Henry Morris writes the few intimations of the names of the sons of Keturah that have appeared in the archeological inscriptions do seem to confirm that the statement of chapter 25 verse six, that they were sent by Abraham into the East country, which would mean it to be Arabia through millennia of migrations, and intermarriages, it seems likely that all of these people, together with the descendants of Ishmael, Lot, and Esau, along with earlier descendants of Shem, and in some cases Ham, have gradually merged and have become the modern-day Arabic peoples. Before Abraham died, he gave all the sons of Keturah, the scripture tells us, gifts are their inheritance. As Well, as he gave to Ishmael, treating them all equally, a reference to those gifts and adequate inheritance. But the bulk of the inheritance, as the Lord had instructed, he gave to Isaac. We have the record of Abraham's death and funeral, if you will, in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 25. We'll look there together. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived in hundred, threescore and fifteen years Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well Leheroi. What a remarkable life Abraham lived. There's really no word to describe it, is it? But remarkable would be one of the words that we could use to describe the life of this man that we have studied for so many weeks. He dies at the great age of 175. He was as the Holy Spirit records, gathered to his people. An interesting figure of speech to the child of God, of, uh, to God going to heaven, the child of God going to heaven and being re- reunited with those who have gone on before. Part of the blessed hope of the life after this life that we believe and that the scriptures teach. It couldn't refer to the fam- family burial ground because there the only one buried in that cave is, uh, of Machpelah was his beloved Sarah. And so that phrase refers to a homecoming, a gathering on the other shore. This phrase, gathered unto his people, speaks of those who have died in faith and gone on before him. Now, this veil that separates us and has separated him from the, the, those who have gone on before has been lifted. And Abraham is with the, with the Lord and with his people. Another figure of speech in time by God's uh, people will be Abraham's bosom. And in the Jewish mindset, that described all things glorious, all things wonderful, all things blissful. We see this phrase in our Lord's message when he was describing the, the poor man, Lazarus, who died and went to heaven and he was in Abraham's bosom. And the, the rich man, who is his contemporary, died and went to hell. But he, he saw, uh, I, uh, saw Lazarus in A- A- Abraham's bosom. And, with, and so he dies and goes to be with the Lord directly. And his contemporary, the rich man, goes and suffers eternal torment. Abraham was buried next to Sarah in the cave of Machpelah, near Mamre, with both Isaac and Ishmael officiating At his funeral, perhaps their old disagreements have passed or perhaps they come together just for to to honor their father. By now, Ishmael himself is 90 years old and has 12 sons of his own, all grown, all had become renowned in their own right and had settled in towns and strongholds and fortresses of their own. And are referred to in Genesis 17 verse 20 as princes. As God had foretold that meaning they ruled over some tribal areas or city states and they were men of renown themselves. Ishmael will die at 137, 58 years before Isaac dies. And the Bible says of him as it does of his father Abraham. Interestingly, we have some of these thorny things given to us in the scripture. When we read there in verse 17 of our chapter, the same thing is said of Ishmael as we've just discussed was said of Abraham, that he was gathered unto his people, and their people have differences of opinion about what that means. Could it mean that Ishmael, after all, had come to know the knowledge of the truth, and that he too had come to, to faith and in saving faith. Many say there's no evidence whatsoever that he did so. However, if we examine only the old testament evidence of the life of Lot we would be remiss, we would, we would come up on the short end of the stick to find anything that would recommend Lot as a man who knew the Lord or was spiritual at all. However, the New Testament in Lot's case does tell us that he was a just man. And the only hint that we have whatsoever that Ishmael could possibly have come to faith is the phrase that we see there in verse 17. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael and 137 and years and he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered into his people. Now, we cannot say what the scripture does not say. But given these two snapshots in this chapter, Ishmael and Isaac together bearing their father, and this reference here that when Ishmael died, he was gathered to his people, I would like to think that he did come to faith and that he was saved after all. That We'll have to leave it with that. That's all the scripture says there. His sons have been difficult uh, to to identify in in, in secular references. The Bible says they dwell from Havilah unto Shur, that is, before Egypt, as thou goest unto Assyria. And so this puts them generally in northern Arabia, along the main caravan route between Egypt and Assyria. Shur is in the wilderness east of the border of Egypt, and Havilah, meaning sandy, It probably refers to all that sandy area, a desert area of northern Arabia. The next major section of Genesis begins, actually begins in the middle of Genesis chapter 25. Beginning there in verse 19, the text that we read this morning, begins the next major section in our study in the book of Genesis, and it runs through chapter 37 and verse 2. I remind you that the verse divisions were not inspired. Those are given to us in chapter divisions to help keep up with things. And so you'll see that the thought of the Holy Spirit, however, runs from verse 19, which we believe, to chapter 37 and verse 2. And it begins with a general comment about Isaac's background. It continues through his life following the marriage and then follows the experiences of Jacob until the time when Joseph is sold into Egypt. Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah, and it will be 20 years before they have children. Like Abraham and Sarah, it would be an area in their lives requiring faith, requiring praying and asking the Lord to lead them and guide them and show them and patience and prayer before God sends them children. Rebekah is from Syria, the Hebrew Aram. And her relatives are said to be Syrians. Aram was a son of Shem. And so the Arameans or the Syrians were Semites. Some suggest that though Isaac knew the promises that God had made to his father and to him, he had been privy to all that the Lord had done in his father Abraham's life. We've traced the Lord's dealings with him as he willingly goes to be a sacrifice and the Lord miraculously intervenes. And so Isaac is not ignorant of these things. He knows about the promises of God, the promised seed. And he must know that that promise must come through him, that he and his wife must have children, must have a seed. Before the promises of God can be fulfilled. He alone does not end there. It must continue. And though he is miraculously born and God answered and and gave, still there is much to be done. And so it seems that maybe he perhaps took it all for granted. Do you think that he might have? As is the danger of all those reared around the things of God. The great danger of Christian homes is children becoming used to these things. Even though they've been raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, God's particular and saving grace is often taken for granted by children of believing parents. And somehow it seems to be one of the the tools of Satan to make them think that they're all right, that they're saved because they have believing parents and because they're around the things of God. And they take these things for granted and children of the truly converted often uh, don't seek the Lord's salvation for themselves presuming upon their parents experience and i i fear that greatly as a pastor and while i commend all that you do as parents in rearing your children the nurture and the admonition of the lord and the sunday school and all the things that we try to do oh you must not overlook that they individually must come to repentance and faith and you must pray a work of divine grace in their hearts and lives oh may every one of our little ones be saved but please please don't take that for granted i've talked with people and warned them about their own lives and the decisions they were making that 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 perhaps they would influence their own children who who would come up against me and say well my children are all right they're saved and they don't know that no one can look into the heart of someone else you don't know that for sure you must pray and ask the lord to do a work in their lives a lasting work in their lives and we wonder here if Isaac may have taken all these things for granted. But everyone, under the sound of my voice, seek the Lord by examining yourselves. Not just the children, but those who have been in gospel churches, hearing the gospel preached freely and plainly and clearly year after year. I would guess, if we were to give testimony service today, that many of you would say you came to faith in Christ after years of hearing the old, old story. May I tell you on the brink of this new year, let me just pause and be a pastor here and speak from a pastor's heart. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves as, to see if you be in the faith. Or as Peter urges us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God desires and demands a personal relationship with each of us, seeking his face, praising him, thanking him, praying and spreading our needs out before him. A promise given is not a presumed right. And Isaac has a promise And yet God waits. The question always arises, why did God wait 20 years? And while we're not told specifically that, we are told that he waited. That in itself is God at work. Yes, God will give Isaac seed. He's promised to do that, hasn't he? I remind you that God has given you many exceeding great and precious promises. But we're to plead them, aren't we? We're to trust Him for them. We don't just have them in a little container on the table where we bring out one a day and read them and that's that. No, we we bring those out and rehearse. Lord, You have said, Lord, Your Word has said, we rehearse and remind Him of His promises and remind ourselves, God will give Isaac a seed. That's God's part. Only God can open and close the womb. But Isaac's part is to seek His face. And to ask Him for what He intends to give. That's God's way. And because the whole process of asking, seeking, and knocking matures us in the faith. If the first time we knock, God answered every prayer immediately and instantly, would we not become presumptuous? Would we not think that we were in charge and that God was there at our disposal to do our every whim? That's not how He works, does He? He tells us He will answer. He says, ask and seek and knock. Call unto me and I will answer thee and give you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. But he also says as he does in Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait. He wills to wait. He decides to wait. Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted. His waiting to be gracious to us is so that he might be exalted, that he may give, have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. It may be 20 years. It may be 50 years. We wait upon the Lord. Has not God promised to supply all of our needs and to give us his blessings, but at the same time, he requires us to pray for them. Does he not teach us, give us this day our daily bread? He doesn't tell us just to pray on the first of the month. Lord, for all the things I might need this month, would you send it in? Or the first day of the new year, as we look upon the promises of God. Lord, you said, as my st- day, so shall my strength be. And there, no, we're to moment by moment. Day by day, Lord, provide the bread, the food, the necessities that I need today. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? And so Isaac must ask, yes, the promise has been made undisputably. Only God can bring it to pass. He's declared it to be, and yet Isaac must pray. And so we see here in verse 21, Isaac praying. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife. He learned one thing from his father. He learned how to intercede, didn't he? He learned the the power and the privilege and the importance and the ministry of intercessory prayer. And so 20 years passed. And I'm sure by that time, Isaac and Rebecca began to wonder, what's going to happen? How is this to be? We have no children, and and the promises of God rest upon the seed. My God shall supply some of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. No, all that you need, every bit of it, he's promised. Now unto him... Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May we never forget the means of everything, the the reason for everything is the glory of God. His supplying your need shows that he's a prayer-hearing God who glories in answering prayer. And when he answers prayer, oh, we ought to tell it and rehearse it to others and say, oh, look what the Lord has done for me. In fact, he entails, he tells often people that were healed, go and tell what great things God has done for you. And we're to pray. And then when he answers, we're to tell, Oh, let me tell you what the Lord has done. My God shall supply all of your need. Oh, how he proved that over and over and over. We prove it here in the ministries here. All these ministries that the Lord has brought under our, our supervision. We daily bombard the throne of grace. For for vast resources that are needed and you do as well if you have a lack and you have a need and it's supplied it doesn't matter if it's ten dollars or ten million dollars the lord is gracious in answering that prayer and supplying the need second peter chapter one verse three tells us according as his mighty power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness he's given us all that we need it's already potentially there for us through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great, not just great promises, but think of it, in the, in the Greek he says, the exceeding, surpassing great, and any promise of God is great, isn't it? But the Holy Spirit there says, exceeding, surpassing great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of, of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world, true lust. Oh, this book is filled with promises. I've heard all kinds of numbers about how many there are. I know this, you'll never exhaust them. It doesn't matter how many there are there. You'll never exhaust the promises of God's word. God's bank account never has a, a draft, it never has an emptiness there when you go to, to, to ask for it. Spurgeon's famous checkbook of faith where he rehearses the promises of God every day, a promise that God has given. Oh, there's promises for every need, for every situation, for every phase of life. You'll find God's grace sufficient. God's delays, and he does do that from our perspective. Now, he's not bound by time. May I remind you that God never really delays. He's always on perfect time. It just seems like delaying to us. I remember as a little boy, if somebody was coming, we'd go out on the porch and look for them as if going out and looking could bring him quicker. You know, somebody was supposed to, an aunt or an uncle was coming to visit, especially around the holiday times. They weren't delayed. They were coming just as they're, when they said they'd come. But in our mind, it just seemed like forever. God is always on time. And he will be on time in answering your need. We should always thank him for that. And his delays, though, what do they do? on our part they force us to pray they force us to seek his face which after all is what he tells us to do doesn't he ask and seek and knock. the whole process is a continual ongoing seeking of the lord if you woke up and the manna was at the front door every day would you pray about that after a while you would be like the children of israel grow bored with it even though it was exactly everything you needed. And ask for something else. That's just the way we are, isn't it? If all the, if life was without us having to ask, without us having to seek the Lord's faith, oh, we'd become the most prideful of people, presumptuous, unspiritual. This is God's means. It keeps us... Con- constantly repenting and confessing and, and examining ourselves. Now, Lord, this is your promise and the answer has not come. Show me, is there something I'm, I'm d- missing here? Doesn't that what that happens? That something comes in your life, some delay, some uh, appointment, some uh, answer, some uh, thing from the doctor or whatever. We could go in any area and we begin to pray and ask the Lord and to seek his face. God's delays force us to do that. We should anyway, shouldn't we? We should wake up every day, bounding up out of the bed, falling on our knees, thanking him for his mercy and grace. But sadly, that's not the case. We may get around to it after a while. And some of you may be like me. You have to be resurrected every day. I mean, just absolutely blasted out, you know. I've always prided myself in being a morning person. All my life I've been that way, just up, you know. But... um, Someone asked me this back last week of a birthday, do I feel my age? And that's one area that I find that, that I feel a little bit a little old is the harder to move in the morning, but our first thoughts ought to be of our creator. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are here. We woke this morning by His good pleasure. Did you know that? He will allow us to stay here as long as it pleases him. And then he will call us home. But in that interval of time, we're to seek his face and his will and his glory in all that we do. May I remind you that he is a wise heavenly father. You and I just do the best we can as parents. And we make our decisions out of our, our limited knowledge. But our father has all the resources and he has, knows all the outcomes of every possible decision. And so we can ask him and ask in faith and ask for his wisdom. He perfects that which concerns us, doesn't he? And he's working on that. There's not one of us that's perfected yet. He is perfecting us. And he makes uh, uh, willing that our, that our hearts soft and, and willing. And he shows us our negligence and our unbelief and even our sin. And all the while working his gracious, good, and acceptable and perfect will. Isaac prays. The Bible tells us he entreated the Lord. That, to me, describes a protracted time of prayer. I think when Isaac began to intercede, I'm sure he was praying all that 20 years, wouldn't you think? But then he got down to business. He got down to seeking the Lord's face and begging and entreating, Lord, what is withholding your blessing? The, The promise must come. All the promises you've made to to my father hinge on this birth because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him. He entreated the Lord and the Lord was entreated. Those requests, those prayers were met. What a beautiful picture that is. uh, Isaac asked, and the Lord was entreated. The Lord condescended to him and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding Abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that worketh in us and to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Here's the first mention of twins in the Bible. We always take a note when we're traveling through the book of Genesis of the first, and here are the first twins, and uh, we have an identical twin in our church here, Anthony here, his brother was here recently, and I, was, I thought I was talking to Anthony, I was talking to his brother, I was giving him some directions of something to do for me, and he just did it, and I later found out that it was not Anthony, but it was his brother, and uh, they're not only identical, they have, they're, uh, they have a lot of unusual things about them, you know, a mirror twins, but these are not identical twins. There could not be more polar opposite than the twins that, that, that Rebecca is carrying. Dr. John Phillips says, indeed, it would be difficult to find a greater contrast than which, that which existed between Esau and Jacob. Here are two boys... Born at the same time, born in the same place of the same parents to the same advantages and opportunities. Yet from the outset, one of them set out in his own stumbling, erring way to please God. The other set out to please himself. One was ruled by a heavenly vision, the other by worldly and carnal things." Now, the teaching of here of Jacob and Esau is so deep and and so important that we'll only just introduce it today. But the last part of the last verse summarizes Esau's attitude towards spiritual things. And it is the very attitude that some have who are raised so privileged around the things of God. Esau despised his birthright. He looked down, that word despised, looked down condescendingly at it. One of the saddest things in all the world, one of the things that grieves my heart more than anything is to, and it is a privilege to serve in one place for so many years. My wife and I will have been here on the staff here for 35 years in, in June and as your pastor for over 15 years. But the thing that being in one place and working in education and with parents and students and those privileged to be around the things of God, the thing that grieves my heart so so desperately of those who've been reared in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to come to a place of despising it and looking down upon it. It is the most sobering, bone-chilling thing that I can think of. How glibly I, Esau looks at this situation. What good is it to me?" was his philosophy. I don't care about the birthright. The whole matter of spiritual things, in, in the book of Hebrews, we'll see, gives us more commentary who, who, look, who, who that profane man that the Bible tells us in describing Esau, he despised his birthright. What a commentary. That summarizes Esau, one who looked down on the privileges that he had. John 1 verse 13 tells us of true conversion that it is not of blood, it's not by birth, not by physical birth. It's not by the will of man. The flesh cannot determine to convert oneself. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nor the will of man, nothing anyone else can do for us that will save us. But John 1 1, verse 13 summarizes, but of God. Salvation is of the Lord. We first see the boys in the womb. Isn't it interesting that the, the scripture records that this struggle, who they were, is already clear and evident from the womb. This competition between them is so fierce. We see it even before their birth. Rebecca was feeling more than the normal fetal movement. A a real struggle was already taking place in her womb. And uh, I think it's a picture of the struggle uh, between the flesh and the spirit that Galatians describes. There in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would Again, Dr. Morris, that great writer of of beginnings and scientific things, says there is much we do not yet understand concerning the growth of the embryo. Present-day abortionists seem to feel that an embryo is not really a person until its birth, even though live births can take place any time over a period of several months before and after the normal gestation period. It is true we cannot remember anything connected with our life before birth, but neither do we remember anything for several years after our birth. A newborn babe does have feelings, however, and can exhibit anger as well as contentment. So why should this not also be true for the, prior, the, the, the period prior to birth? The few references in the Bible that discuss embryonic development and attitudes at least intimate that this is so. We see that in Psalm 139 where the psalmist declares that the Lord designed him before he ever placed him in his mother's womb. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5. In Luke, we just through the Christmas season noticed that Elizabeth uh, seemed to, to intimate that John the Baptist in her womb knew that the Messiah was in his presence. Babies can surely fight with each other if they are given the opportunity. Very soon after they're born, what is to prevent their doing so before they're born? There's no reason not to take the, the passage quite literally. And in fact, that's exactly what we do. The Bible says we know that, that life begins at conception. And these babies, these uh, ones inside of Rebecca's womb, perceive how much they perceive, we do not know. But all that they're going to be is already there. And they obviously can hear and perceive and already the scripture tells us that strife begins to take place. It was so troubling to Rebecca that to, to, to find out what the reason was for. Her. So she began to seek the Lord for answers. And may I say that's a very good thing to do. What Rebecca did is a very good thing to do. She began to ask the Lord what no one else could tell her. And she called upon him. And in verse 23, the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people. And unmistakably, clearly, from the Lord himself, out of his own sovereign will, he tells her. And she doesn't like what he tells her. We know she doesn't like it, don't we? She will set in motion a plan to thwart the plan of God. We know that. We haven't got there yet. But you know how she tells her favorite child what to do to get the birthright? and she asks god to tell her what she wants to what she needs to know and when god tells her she doesn't like it that's a lot of like a lot of people i know the scripture speaks why why this why this and the scripture gives the answer and then they get mad about it instead of bowing before god's sovereignty and god's majesty and say lord i don't understand this this teaching this scripture this do you're doing in my life but I do know you're all wise and shall not the judge of all the earth do right and I will bow before it. The elder shall serve the younger and when God makes a statement, whether you like it or not or feel that it's just, we know that it is just if he said it. God can only do that which is just. Don't ever let your human reasoning cloud the declarations of God about himself. We thought the mistake the scripture says you thought i was altogether one like as you are and so when we enter into some scriptural thing and some doctrine we say oh that's not fair well god is always fair if there's something not fair about it is that we just don't have enough sense to see the end from the beginning like god sees now we will know this and i must close here esau will do just exactly what the scripture says he will do and Jacob will as well. Esau will despise his birthright, birthright. And the younger, the elder will serve the younger. While this may be hard for us to understand, God has his own sovereign will in spite of man's opinion. Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways Past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? And who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him that it may be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. These two boys will represent two opposing principles. The conflict and its issue is now enacted where everyone can clearly see it. For sooner or later, the inner struggle we experience will manifest itself openly in our lives. We see it no more clearer than here in the lives of Jacob and Esau. We will either adopt the principles exemplified by Esau, or the principles exemplified by Jacob. We will either live our lives after the spirit or after the flesh. There's no in-between. There's one or the other. I would ask you this Lord's Day, at the end of this study, this introduction to the lives of these men, how would you categorize yourself? Only you can know, as we've already mentioned, examine ourselves. Let me ask you a simple question. Are you spiritual or are you after the flesh? Has the Holy Spirit of God shown you your helplessness before an almighty, perfect, glorious, powerful God? Your hopeless condition to change yourself or to save yourself or to to modify yourself in any way that would commend you to the perfections of God? Have you come to that place of surrender to the Lord's will, of His working in your life, of His decisions, of His sovereign dealings with you? Or do you lift your puny little fist pridefully in the face of the God of all the earth and say, why have you made me thus? There's only one thing to do when you meet the God of the Scriptures. It is to humbly bow yourself before Him. Say, I am yours, you have all authority. You have made me, you have created me. I can't add one cubit to my stature, not one second to my lifespan. All of that is in the hands of a sovereign God. I can't do one thing about those things, but I can bow to Him. I can bow and surrender in humility to him and say, Lord, make of me whatever you will. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God come alongside and take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and divide the joints and the marrow and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would show us these things. You are good. Your will is good and acceptable. And though it goes against our flesh, and though you delay in answering, and though you wait, Lord, you do so that we, you may be gracious unto us. But, Lord, we're always concerned about those outside of Christ who have not yet humbled themselves in repentance and simple faith, receiving you as Lord and Savior. Lord, you said that you would save those who come to you through Christ Jesus. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Bless us, Lord, and even as we study difficult portions of Scripture, we pray the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide and illumine us. Lord, we pray that those outside of Christ would come to you just now and surrender to you. And may those of us who know you surrender to you in that area in our life that we may be struggling with, that that difficulty, that, that dark thing, that thing that we wish was removed, but you have brought the treasuries of darkness into our lives, that you may do something far beyond what we could ask or think. And so we bow before you in acceptance faith today. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen.